So having said that, I want to jump in this morning to the book of Jonah. We're going to do two weeks on Jonah. Kind of hit the first two chapters today uh, and the second two chapters next Sunday. And this one has been probably more personal for me than most sermons I've kind of tried to think through or frame out or, or books of the Bible. It, and maybe we'll get to that in just a minute, but um, I really want to wrestle with what I think is in Jonah here and what it means for our walk of faith. But uh, let me just pray real quick for us before we get started. Father, you uh, see past all the externals. I just pray today you'd give us the same ability. May we be made in your image. May we reflect your heart. Give us your eyes to see what truly matters. May we be found to the best of our ability where you're at, desiring nothing else, desiring you alone. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So just by way of context, let's get into Jonah. Jonah is in the prophets. It's only like two pages, so if you want, you can just jump straight to the table of contents and then go there uh, for risk that 10 minutes from now you're going to be feeling more and more awkward as, as you're rifling through your Old Testament. But Jonah is in the Minor Prophets. It's a familiar one, at least in terms of the broad shot of, of what it's about. It's, it's, it's one of those stories that shows up in every church, in every kids program in every kids camp it's the story of Jonah and the whale and so what happens is we end up identifying more with kind of the flannel graph version or the cartoon version than we really do with the emotional first person experience of the story that's taking place here and so as we jump in we see this verse one and I'm going to read a good chunk today just uh, it's only four chapters long, and we're going to do two today, but it starts this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you turn over to Amos chapter 6, what you see is in the northern part of the kingdom, the, the Israelites had kind of been able to solidify the northern part of the kingdom some time ago. And then as that happens, what inevitably occurs is, is a degree of complacency. And in that, uh, a degree of uh, turning away from God and, and drawing out God's reaction and his judgment. And so what you see in this period is this kind of prophecy of upcoming judgment. So Amos says this in verse 6, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, your notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calna and look at it. Go from there to the great Hamath and, and then go to the Gath and Philistine. Are, there, are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. Uh, you lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. And it goes on and it says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. And so God is sending Jonah up into this region. And he's going to send Jonah up to preach judgment against this great city of Nineveh. Now Jonah 
doesn't like this because one, he doesn't like the task of preaching repentance to these people. Doesn't seem fun. Two, he probably doesn't want them to turn because they're up on the northern boundaries and, and he doesn't care for them turning and coming back into uh, a safe position. Uh, and three, he probably just doesn't like the ethnicity and the differences culturally or whatever it is, but he just doesn't want this task. And so Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. I've got a little map we can show up real quick. But the, the, the only thing I really want to illustrate is if you see way over here on the right is where Nineveh is located, way up above kind of the northern kingdom area. And the direction by sea that Jonah is going to go is completely the opposite direction. I, I, you know what I mean? Like it's just, he, he's not halfway hitting it. He, he's just choosing a different path. And then in verse 4 it says this, The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And he said, Pick me up. And throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault, and this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. So they threw him into the raging sea. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And God takes Jonah back to fulfill the calling he gave him to go to Nineveh. And in a minute, we're going to get to chapter 2, which is Jonah's prayer. But the first thing I want to just say is I I um I'm I'm much more on the reason side of the equation than I am on the emotion side of the equation. It's the way God made me. And I can usually calm my emotions with my reason. Does that make sense? So when emotions come, you can reach out and just say, here's what I know to be true, and you change your perspective and, and you ground yourself in that truth. Uh, emotions, you can do the same thing. Even though reason doesn't 
look good. And you're like, man, on paper, there's no way this is going to turn out good for me. There's just no way. Those of you who are more emotional uh, can call on your relationship with God and say, but I know God. I, I, I've experienced his faithfulness and, and I realize it. And I can anchor myself in that relationship even though my reason can't see its way out of this box. Does that make sense? And the reason I called this series Reason and Emotion is I think that there are certain times when the scenario is such that neither reason nor emotion can give you much hope. There's, there's nothing in you, in your makeup, in your human kind of will and capacity that will allow for you to be anchored and you get to this point of despair, you get so backed into a corner, things become so hopeless that you are undone. It's your fault, it's somebody else's fault, but you're now at the terminal point of whatever it is that's transpired. And when you reach that terminal point, there's no way forward, there's no way out, and you are completely undone, panicked, afraid, terrified, and, and just almost wanting to throw yourself at something and give up. I, uh, I can, because I'm more on the rational side, I can easily forget times of strong emotion in my life. It's easy for me to forget the times that faith was hard and to begin to get very triumphalistic with following God in a radical way and in a significant way. And, and just, it becomes a, a real, just, it's a logical decision for me. It's the rational thing to do. So I just do it. I think other people should do it. And it becomes, over time, easier for me. And I lose sight of the emotion things. And in doing that, and I think we do this a lot. We begin to think the great test of our faith is behind us. And that from here forward, it's just us and Jesus taking on the world. We, we think that that time it was really scary, but somehow we hung on and sometime, uh, somehow we cried out to the Lord and somehow we endured and somehow he got us through. And, and, and over time, we begin to be so proud of ourselves because you know what? I was right. I hung on to the Lord. He really was in charge. Look what he did to deliver me. I passed that trial. I passed the test. I got my degree. And now it's on to the next thing because that's behind me. I don't know if I've ever shared it, but um, I have, I, I think a lot of people do, but I have a recurring nightmare in my life. And you might laugh when I, when I say it to you because it's, it's, it's really unique. Um, my recurring nightmare, I mean, I'll wake up in cold sweats, is that I am absolutely failing out of college and there is no way to pass. I mean, failing out of the semester, failing out of college, failing out of the degrees in, in classes where it's mathematically impossible to, to succeed and, and being absolutely panic-stricken that there's no way to fix this and I'll wake up in a cold sweat. And I, I'm not a psychologist or a doctor, but I know, I know where the nightmare came from. That was my experience for the first four years of college. There's a lot of chemicals involved, a lot of sleep deprivation, and a lot of um, flat-out panic because I would, I would 
um, not do anything for the first month and a half of every semester. And then the first round of tests would come, and I was in engineering. And the way engineering works is you get four tests. Four tests. And they average together, that's your grade, right? So it kind of matters what each test score is. And so I would mess around, we'd come to the first test, and I'd get like a 50 or a 40. And then um, it was always the same thing. Then I would go cry on the phone to my mom. Then I would ask her to send me money. Um, <laughs> and, and then I would literally exist the rest of the semester in a state of utter terror because mathematically I had to so overachieve on the remaining tests to pass that um, I mean, it, was, it was just unbelievable emotion, right? I, and I, I did this over and over and over again, right? Um, and so now I wake up. My reality, my, my, my nightmare has kind of found its way into my, my inner recesses and it just works its way out every now and then, right? Here's the thing, though. I mean, I'm not, am I, I'm not the only one with a nightmare, right? Recurring nightmare? Okay. It's nice to feel no, kind of normal uh, every now and then. Um, when I wake up, it's always the same thing. It takes about 60 seconds to get my bearings, to kind of lay there and breathe and go, wait a second, I, I graduated. And then I went on to grad school. Like, I'm, I'm safe. Like, I'm, I'm so far past some professor um, <laughs> coming to me and, and, and saying that he misgraded something I actually didn't deserve to pass, and now that throws off. I'm so past something going wrong that would rob me of that, that degree. I'm, like, I'm, I'm so safe that I take a deep breath and just go, oh, I'm so, wow. So glad that's behind me, you know. And then the next morning, I'm like, "Hey, Tam, I guess what dream I had again, right?" I th I think we do that same thing with the the great tests of our faith in our life. Even if we've had a couple, we, we get to the point eventually where we feel like that is behind me. That was a great test, but I passed. And now I'm okay. And because now I'm okay, the conversation is different. It's not, about, it's not about me having to endure the greatest of emotional trauma and difficulty and pain and, and, and paranoia, whatever it is. It's about me being given directions from a God that, that I want to do because I'm, I'm a great disciple of his and then going and charging those different hills. And, and this isn't the case. We see with Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, for whatever reason, pursuing a, a course different than what God had marked out for him. And in doing so, in making a wrong turn in life, gets to this position where he is so undone, there's no way out, that he resigns himself to dying and being thrown overboard. There's no option left to him. There's no recourse. And he realizes uh, in that, I mean, what must have been an unbelievable emotional state that I, I'm going to get thrown overboard. And I mean, here's where I'm at. And he gets thrown overboard. And in that moment of absolute panic and nothing his reason can grab hold of, nothing his emotions can grab hold of, and just 
resigning to that, in that moment, God catches him. And God begins to steer him back on course to the plans that God has for him. And here's what that's meant to me or said to me the last couple weeks. One, God is sovereign. He's over everything. It means he's over the things that go right in our life. And oftentimes, he's over the things that go wrong in our life. And sometimes, sometimes, the things that go wrong in our life are not getting in the way of our calling. They're not these things, if God would just fix them, if they would just go away, then I could get on to this business of serving God. Sometimes the trials themselves are from God to steer us back to where he really would have us be. How does that sit with you? I can tell you how it sits with me. Uh, I don't want my future filled with unbelievably difficult tests of faith. I, 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 you know, I, I don't do emotion often, so I hate it when, I, when it happens once a decade, right? Like, I just, when, when you get the ulcer and you can't sleep at night and you can't even eat because your stomach's just tossing and turning and, and you're just so afraid you're so afraid and there's, you just feel like, there's, I don't want that in my future. And the story of Jonah teaches me that sometimes to stay on track, as I veer or make mistakes, there might come those times purposely to bring me back to where I'm supposed to be. Can we worship God if that's in our future? Can we commit to God that we will hold our hands out and walk by faith and trust his sovereignty if there are times like that or those kinds of things could occur in our future? You see, there's this myth that God's will for your life is like a compass that always points north. You see, ultimately in the end, it points north. But we, we somehow get rid of the distinction and we think that if God's will happened in my life right now, his will for me today, his will for me in this situation, if God's will was slapped onto me now, it would point north. And so we pray and we reach out and we cry out and we ask God, how come you're not slapping your sticker on? How come you're not showing up? Because if you were, it would point north and I would go up. And isn't that what you want for me? And I think the whole time God knows, as a parent does with a child, that, yeah, ultimately, I want it to go north. Today, it's got to go west. Tomorrow, it's got to go east. And I don't know that I could tell you now, because I don't know that you could handle it, but next year, it's got to go south. And guess what? After that, it's going to go north. Is God complex enough in our thinking to not be a 365-day-a-year Santa that we talk to that makes us feel warm and loved and cuddly 
and will always give us what we want before we say goodbye? Is he like Jesus we were talking about earlier? Is he like a, a shepherd who's strong but cares more about truth than just bringing a degree of comfort or giving us our wants, wishes, and desires? Cares more about the, the relationship than he does about our pleasure. Cares more about ultimately us being in the right place and being saved than he does catering to us and leaving us in our infancy or childhood. Is, is God wild or is God predictable, simple, definable, in a box? And the, re, the reason this passage in this text challenges me so much is because our reason knows, I mean, when we're talking about this, you, we all know God isn't small and in a box, right? Um, our emotion knows that he's wild and he's big and, and he's unpredictable. And we can take both of those sitting here on a day that we're going to walk out in beautiful weather and go get a great lunch and, and have some leisure time. There. We can take both of those and accept those. But what I want to know is when reason is kicked out and emotion is kicked out and you're in a dead panic, can we resign ourselves to God in those moments? Um, I had, it's funny, they, they tell you in, when you're learning how to preach, never to preach the book of Job you know, never to, you know, never preach something that, you know, God's going to have to teach you, right? There's some other funny ones like that, that you know, you never preach because it'd be funny if it was visited on you. But I'm, I'm getting ready to teach this. And for the first time in 11 years, about a week ago, I, you know, it hasn't stopped, by the way. I'm, I'm in it. But I'm in a flat terror. Just a, un, I mean, just a flat, afraid of the future terror and and i'm playing all the mind games that we play you know trying to block things out of your mind trying to you know look at your kids long enough and hard enough that that the obvious goodness and beauty will overpower the fears or or to try and work so hard but then you you, you know energy only goes so far especially when you're only sleeping an hour a night right and 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 i'm in this terror and i'm kind of just laughing i'm like god this is a part of the faith. When Jesus looked at Peter and said, you know, Peter, I'm going to tell you this because I need to tell you this, but you're not going to hear me. That's all right. You'll remember. But Peter, before tonight ends, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, of course I won't. That's not a part of my faith journey. That's not a part of my story. By the end of that very night, when reason went, when emotion went, when panic set in, when, when everything was, was threatening, Peter threw himself at whatever he could get to get out of that situation and denied Christ three times. And I, I guess what I've been learning this last week is it's like, 
do we, are we, are, I don't, you know, by the way, I am a patriot. I mean, I, I love America. I don't, I don't know how often I, you know, say American Christianity or something like that. I don't want, ever want you to think that I'm harping on one side, but, but to speak straight at something, there's a, there's a triumphalistic sense of American culture, American Christianity, that everything is always getting better. This myth that everything is always going to get better. If we just move forward, it will work itself out and everything will, will get better. I mean, an economic downturn, it's okay. Let's just move forward. Everything will get better. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing, but we don't, it's why we can't show our grief on the outside. We read the Old Testament where they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes in their anguish, in their, their lack of reason and emotion. They would sit in these, I mean, just this utter position of torment and grief visibly for everyone to see, and they would grieve it out. What would it look like if someone came in on a Sunday morning in sackcloth and ashes and sat somewhere wailing? I mean, what would that look like culturally to us? But in the Old Testament, it's there, you know. And so we don't have this sense of, of being able to grasp that there are going to be times in our life where we might renege on our faith. We might deny him. Or there are times still in our future because this world is broken. Jesus promised that we would suffer, that it would come if we followed him. There are times in our future where all of it is going to get kicked out from beneath us. And somehow we still have to to find a way to believe in the sovereignty of God and throw us, ourselves on that. I was meeting with one of the, the men in my life that, that I've found recently that teaches me about faith. And he said this, he says, uh, you know, I once heard if you're worried about missing God's will, don't. Because it'll It'll come. If God really wants it, it'll come. The Spirit, I learned a long time ago when I read a book on prayer by Dallas Willard, and it rang very true to me. The Spirit doesn't argue with us. When we pray, we can rationalize. We can go over and over. Well, you didn't really say to go to Nineveh. You didn't really say to go now. It, you were kind of just suggesting it, weren't you, God? I, no response? Okay, well then I guess that settles it. We, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit says go, waits for only one response. Waits for us to obey in humble submission. And if we begin to argue with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sits there silently staring at us. I think hoping that we'll notice what it is we're doing. But we can sometimes go years of pushing away God's call in our life because he doesn't argue back. The Spirit doesn't just throw out ideas. Hey, I got an idea. Maybe you should do this. This would be cool. Oh, but if you don't want to do that, what, what about this? This would be really rocking, you know? Um, oh, 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 that was yesterday's idea. I got a better idea for today. You should do this. 
as if we can be, I mean, I played baseball in high school and, and there was always the guys during batting practice, you know, that had 50 gloves in their back pockets, all for show. You know what I mean? Like, you ever meet those baseball players? They have more gloves than hands and, you know, it's all, and they would sit there at batting practice, right? It's batting practice. Just swing the bat, right? But they would look off like pitch after pitch. It's like 20 pitches just went by. You haven't swung the bat. It's batting practice. Just, you know, just swing the bat. And, and sometimes I think we do that with God, you know, we're chewing our bubble gum and we've got all the, you know, the gloves out of our pockets and sweat things on our forearms and, and we're just like, nah, nah, next one, you know, nah, nah, you know, and it's like, come on, throw out some more ideas. You know, that last one, I almost bit at that, but, but God, you've got to have something else, you know, this, let's get a real fun one. I know, let's get one that makes me lots of money because I'll use it to glorify you. I know, help me like get rid of my job so I don't have to work and have lots of time because I'll, I'll, I'll use that time to serve you because I can't serve you now because, you know, I just, I don't have the time. But the Spirit um, doesn't throw out ideas. The Spirit doesn't argue. And if the Spirit really does call you, what I learned from Jonah here is the Spirit will find you. And, it, and somehow, some way, will bring you back. And that's what I want to close with. If we read Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, he says this, In my distress I called you, Lord. And he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. And the engulfing waters that threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I was at an all-time low seaweed was wrapped. I mean, the heck, how did that verse get in Scripture? You know, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. See, I was at an all-time low. I couldn't eat. My stomach was so full of acid. I couldn't play with my kids without snapping at them because my stress was so high. The things I loved were emptiness to me. I couldn't even sit at a movie and enjoy it. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Into the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And those who cling to worthless idols forfeit, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. In the Old Testament, the primary meaning of the word salvation and redemption was right here, right now, your captivity, your torment had allusions to being saved, 
to be able to go with God, be with God forever in heaven. And Jesus in the New Testament takes and codifies and helps us understand that part. But in the Old Testament, God saves people literally from the depths of the ocean. God saves people literally from the depths of despair. God saves you literally from having no hope to having a position of hope. And the response to that is a type of worship that you cannot help but give. Sometimes I'm, I'm the worst worshiper when it comes to Sunday morning worship because we come in and it can often be so tepid. And if we haven't connected the dots that God has somehow rescued me, liberated me, saved me, redeemed me, that he continues to do it and will continue to do it. And as hard as it is for me to to kind of digest that or, or throw myself on him, as afraid as I am, there's nowhere else I can look, nothing else I can anchor myself in, not reason, not emotion, but only the sovereignty of God and that he does save and does redeem. And so I want to praise him. I want to talk to him. I want to be with him he's my only hope and so there's nothing else that distracts me because that's the largest thing in the room I want to worship and if we don't understand the nature of life and and the reality that faith kind of has to take us through that on the thin kind of stretches sometimes then we will never have in ourselves the ability to worship and Jesus looked at the rich and he said, man, it's so hard for you guys because you've never been saved from anything. You've never been rescued. And so you don't get it. And, and in the Old Testament, God talks about, I want you to do justly to the, 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 the alien, the foreigner. And listen to how he says it. Because you yourselves were once slaves in Egypt. You yourselves were once strangers in the land. Don't you realize how I've redeemed you, how your narrative, how your story is one of being brought out of the pit and in being brought out of the pit, can't you empathize and understand the dire situation, the difficulties of the emotion with this person that they have no recourse and be moved with compassion to try and help them in their time of of, of need like I helped you in your time of need. And so empathy begins to grow up and it undergirds and drives our action with our fellow man. I want to close just by reading Psalm 40. And I want to ask you this question. Is it possible that God is in our despair as much or sometimes more than our joy? Is it possible that God is in our despair as much or sometimes more than our joy? And by the way, I was, I was walking the river trail yesterday and I was looking at one of those places, the Deschutes, when it's kind of narrow and the water's just really going. You know what I'm saying? It's, I mean, it's gorgeous around here, if you've never noticed, Right? There's a real difference between looking at white water and being in white water. We're all 
we all have and will be in white water, as God saves us, as we learn to praise him, we need to soften and have a place in our heart for other people who are in white water because we know what that feels like. And that we're not gonna preach platitudes and we're not gonna give them pep talks. I mean, you know why you hate that person when you're really in despair that comes to you and gives you the Christian answers? Because reason and emotion aren't the thing that's gonna anchor you. Talking to them isn't gonna help. The only thing that's gonna anchor you, the only thing that's gonna help is somehow finding God in that. So let's learn to pray for people and to avoid Christian bumper stickers. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand, and he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Here's a new definition of worship for you. Worship is the song that God has written into your heart through his salvation, reconciliation, liberation, and redemption. Worship is the song God has written or put into you, your heart through what he's done in your life. Chris Tomlin would be out of business. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. And blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, there would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced, which is Old Testament language for meaning I have become a slave or a servant to you. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, the stuff that I just give out of routine, you did not require. And then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, oh my God, for your law is within my heart. Father, we commit ourselves to you today. Wherever we stand, whether it's on sure ground or whether it's on shaky ground, knowing that some day all shaky ground in this earth, all, all ground in this earth, earthly life will get shaky. And then we want to begin to transfer our trust to you now. We want to begin to build that relationship and that hope in you that when those times come, there's something deep inside us that's able to throw ourselves on you and to still hope in the Lord. If you have to break us, break us. If you have to steer us, Steer us, but please, oh, oh God, don't let us miss your will. In Jesus' name.